spent a few days, which was very, very uh, good and inspiring and helpful. So I got in uh, Wednesday night late and glad to be home and getting back into things here. Here is a note from uh, Shirley Heitman, an update on her daughter, or daughter-in-law it is, um, Marie-Anne Kennebec. Uh, she was moved to a rehab facility yesterday. Uh, some of you may not have heard this. I had not heard it all until today that she had had uh, an accidental overdose of her pain medications, and I don't know all about that. It doesn't matter. But uh, they took her in, and she was declared brain dead and uh, given two hours to, do, to two days to finish dying. And uh, word went out for a lot of prayers, and she started recovering as now in rehab. So who knows what God might be doing. Uh, Shirley's kids were raised no truth, and uh, uh, the family might be impacted by that. Her son might be, the daughter-in-law herself might be, who knows what God might be doing, but uh, seems to be a pretty miraculous situation, and she seems to be doing well at the rehab. She still has some pain in the chest due to IVs and all that she went through, and is still on some oxygen. Uh, her husband, and I wish to thank you all for your prayers and encouragement. That's from Shirley. Uh, I also had heard that uh, Jeannie Patton, whom some of you know, uh, she attended the feast with us for several years up in Zion, and uh, is at this point with United, uh, but I decided to give her a call. She is still listening to uh, our sermons, uh, still is friendly and uh, very well disposed toward us, let's say, so I felt comfortable to give her a call. But she's, uh, it's been on Facebook, so I don't think she would mind, and she seemed to indicate she'd appreciate all the prayers she could get. But uh, she has come up with a, oh, about a quarter of an orange-sized lump in her breast, and uh, it's been diagnosed as cancerous, so uh, she's facing a very severe trial in her life, and uh, I'm sure would appreciate our prayers uh, very much. Uh, I have a very high regard for Jeannie and her husband and family. They've, they're certainly fine people, and uh, I, my heart goes out to her and to them, and, and our prayers are as well. There is another potential great danger, perhaps to us, perhaps to the United States and the world in general, and before I get to the sermon, I want to make at least a few comments. I may have a lot more to say about this in the future in sermons when I'm done with what I'm doing now, but you're all aware of the Ebola scare in uh, Africa and that it may be spreading into Europe, and with international travel being what it is, with people coming from every direction, crisscrossing the earth daily by the hundreds of thousands, it could very quickly become a global pandemic. That is one issue we're facing. We're also facing increased rumors of wars and wars. I read yesterday there are only 11 nations out of over 200 on the earth 
<clears throat> that do not have some kind of war or conflict within their borders. Eleven. So the globe is certainly descending into all kinds of war, conflict, killing. Uh, we have within our gates at the moment in Missouri a situation that has caused rioting and all kinds of difficulties over the last few days. Uh, whether or not that will spread, uh, I read, I think it was yesterday, that terrorists killed a total of 17 Americans last year. 17 by world terrorism. Policemen within this country killed 5,000. 5,000 plus. Doesn't sound many out of 300 million, but if you break that down, that's 100 people on average in each of the 50 states. On average, then, Utah policemen would have killed 100 in Arizona the same. Now, I suspect that the number is lower uh, in the Intermountain region than it would be on the east or the west coast, but that's just taking it on average. And that's scary business. Now, what if these circumstances created a situation where martial law was, was uh, imposed and travel restrictions were given? Now, this is apart from biblical prophecies. This is just things that we are looking at right now, among others. Just a, two or three that came to mind. What if because riots broke out in various cities and so on, martial law were instituted and you could not travel, you could not leave home, or Ebola became a pandemic globally and you did not dare leave your home to go to work, to go shop, or anything else? And they are already saying that it could be spreading even to this country, and certainly through all the people coming across our southern border right now by the tens and hundreds of thousands, and from many countries, including uh, perhaps ISIS members and other terrorists who are coming across the border, as well as people who are bringing Ebola and other viruses and diseases, diphtheria, tuberculosis, you name it, with them, and they're being scattered all over the country. I heard yesterday the uh, Wisconsin governor gathered up a bunch of people who had been deposited in Wisconsin, hired a plane on state money, and flew them back to Nicaragua and kicked them off the plane. He says, you're not going to do that in my state. So we have the dynamics of things happening in this country that could lead to a shutdown any time. I have one question for you. Are you prepared? Many of you work up at Zion Park and food service or in places where people come in by airplane from all over the world daily and you mix up there with hundreds if not thousands of people per day who could be carrying a virus from Europe or Asia or Africa or wherever they came from. You would be shut down. You would have to go home. We might not be able to go to Hurricane or St. George to shop if it were that grim. I know it's going to get that grim. I just don't know when. It will get there. But what if it happened next week or next month? 
Are you prepared to survive for however long that might be? I don't think it would be a great long amount of time. It might be a matter of weeks or months or a year or two. Who knows? But Americans would begin to die by the millions because they couldn't shop. The trucks would be shut down. They wouldn't be delivering food to the big stores or the little stores. And if you went to town, there wouldn't be anything to buy anyway. Are you prepared for when this occurs? Just a question. We'll probably get into it more at some point. But the handwriting is on the wall. And the events are beginning to occur in frightening rapidity. They're closer together than they used to be. So this thing is not too far from touching everyone. And we need to be as prepared for that as we can be. There are many scriptures that indicate that. I do not know how long God might allow the plagues that are coming on this country to come upon his people, even as he did Israel and ancient Mitzrayim when they were in captivity or about to go into captivity. Well, no, they were already. It was the end of it when the plagues came. And God allowed the first few to affect the Israelites as well. Then he made a difference. Now, will it be the same? I don't know. But we may face some of these things for some time before God makes a difference. And we may be called upon for a while, to one degree or another, to take care of ourselves. Now, I am working feverishly along with a few others to get us prepared in terms of the first necessity beyond air, and that is water. We're working on setting up tanks to store water uh, for use, both for fire department and also for human consumption. And on one well, we're going to have three ways to get water out of the ground. A regular electric pump, which we're using now, a solar pump, which we have, and we're also going to have, when we're done, hopefully three windmills active that can pump water just with the wind. There are a fourth and fifth method. You can get these little hand crank pumps that will pump water out, and we're only down about 26 feet to water. And if that fails, you can drop a bucket on a rope and still only be 26 feet to water. So that's perhaps redundant to have that many different ways to get water to the surface, but water is going to be the most important thing. So we're working... Uh, very hard right now to try to get all of those things lined up so that we have that provided. Anyway, I think that's probably enough said on that, but it wouldn't hurt to deeply consider being as prepared as you can for weeks or months of having to provide not just air or water, but sustenance, a way to eat. Uh, some are prepared, some are not. I was recently talking to a man who does a lot of solar work and has for many years, and he's, he's a Mormon and he's trying to figure me out. He, I haven't told him not a, I'm not a Mormon, and I can see the wheels going. He, some things I say I agree with him on, so he thinks maybe, and then I, then I see this look come across his face, and he doesn't really know, and I'm not going to tell him, but he's doing a little work for us to get some solar stuff ready as well. 
But he said, even though the Mormons dictate that you're supposed to have three years of stores in place for your family, he said, many Mormons don't live up to it, don't comply with it, and haven't done it. And he is on preparedness committees and is in the know and knows what he's talking about. So, uh, that could be true of us as well. Is it fair for you not to prepare the best you can and then go to your neighbor and say, uh, oh, I, I didn't get any food in, uh, can I come eat with you? Would that be fair? Now, I know because of financial restraints and so on, uh, it may be difficult to get in beyond a certain point. But I think we have a responsibility to each other and to ourselves to be as ready as we can when this comes down. Uh, you know, we're supposed to love each other and share, but is it fair uh, not to do everything you can and then have to go ask? Uh, that, to me, would be a form of stealing. In other words, I didn't take care of myself now I'm pointing my finger at you and saying, you take care of me. That wouldn't be fair. It wouldn't be right. It wouldn't be godly. Now, if you do the best you can and you fall short of what the ultimate need is, then we're here to share, all of us. I think we all understand that. That's what God's love is all about. But it behooves each of us to look to the ant, you sluggard, and prepare for the winter that is to come. And the winter is coming in terms of economic, an economic world and a, an unsafe world and a world that does not produce food at the grocery store. We know this. We've been seeing it coming for years. But now it appears to be at the very door. So uh, take that for what it's worth. And I think it's worth quite a bit. Now let's get back. It's been in time elapsed, only two Sabbaths, but at least three weeks then since uh, I left off where I was in uh, a series about Satan and his devices and his control and his rulership of this earth. And uh, I'll give you just a brief review. We ended up last sermon going through First Chronicles 21, where it's was very clearly stated that Satan influenced David. David being a man of God, who served God, worshipped God, wrote psalms about God. And yet, as strong a man as David was, Satan was able to influence him to number Israel. And that means to assess the military capability of Israel. Numbers of fighting men, numbers of horses and chariots and so on. Because he wanted that security and that protection, and Satan somehow convinced David that he ought to do that in spite of God's instructions not to number Israel. God's purpose in that being, you don't know how secure you are, you don't know how many fighting men you have, therefore you have to depend upon God. And he wanted David and all kings of Israel and all Israelites to have that foremost in their mind that God was their protector. He was their source of blessing or cursing. 
But David got sidetracked there, apparently fairly easily by Satan, and then had to accept one of three different punishments, and he chose to put himself in God's hands. And even at that, thousands of people died because God wanted the lesson driven in. Then we talked about Job and the byplay between he and God and all of the things so horribly that happened to Job at God's behest and at God's direction. He did put limits on Satan that he could not go beyond, so God was in charge all the way through. And I think we have a modern counterpart of that in some ways within the church of God. God makes it very, very clear in hundreds of verses that he is the one behind what has occurred to the church because of Laodiceanism and so on and spewing us out. Now, did he allow Satan to do a lot of this and his demons and his, his emissaries that affect, affected men and leaders within the church? You bet. Satan is always ready there if God wants to bring a punishment or a curse on any given situation or people, Satan's always, oh, I'll, I'll go. I'll do that. So Satan has done a lot of this to us, but God is the one who originated it. So that we might learn lessons even as David learned lessons. Many ten thousands of people who were once members of the Church of God have died of the spiritual sword spiritual famine and pestilence, or they've gone back into the captivity of the world and its religions or no religion whatsoever. So the devastation that has occurred is somewhat similar to the plague in David's time, or in one personal life, all the things that happened to Job, losing his children and his wealth and his health, everything except his life. God limited Satan there, and he could not take his life, but he made his life so miserable it wasn't worth living. But he saw his way through it. Now I want to go from there. That's all the time I had that day. Let's go to the New Testament a bit, to Matthew 16. Here's a very interesting passage. Uh, I'll pick it up in verse 18, because Christ was speaking to Peter, whom he had selected to be the physical leader, uh, top leader, uh, in the church at that time. And he was giving some in, him some instruction here. It says, You are Peter, and upon this rock, Peter there is uh, Petros, which means pebble or small rock. Uh, and he said, Upon this rock, different word, Petra, meaning big rock will I build my church. So he says, you're a pebble, Peter, and I'm the rock that I'm going to build the church on, is the sense of it. And the gates of the grave, or Gehenna, shall not prevail against it. Once I build it, it will always be there. Now that does not mean that it would not suffer falling away. It would not suffer all kinds of difficulties, which it did in the years soon after this uh, conversation occurred. Many, many people were killed. Many were even sentenced and given the death penalty by Paul or Saul, uh, who later became Paul, himself. 
There was a great falling away, and there was a great martyrdom, and the church, by the, by the year 100 A.D., about 70 years later, just barely survived. Just as the end-time church has reached the point of barely surviving. Many who are still involved are weak, timorous, afraid, confused, frustrated, don't know what to do, insecure. That's pretty much universal around the world throughout all the congregations of the church, all the splinters. Some may not be quite that insecure because they may have leaders who tell them you're a-okay and as long as you are here with me, everything will be fine, you don't have to worry. So they may miss what's coming. And they may be in the middle of it because they were assured that everything will be okay. Uh, We still have plans to go to Petra. I almost have to laugh at that because the Bible doesn't say that anywhere. It was a Protestant thing that Herbert Armstrong picked up. That's not the place of refuge in the Bible. It's somewhere else. Anyway, let's not get into too much of that. The church would not die out. It would never go completely away. Verse 19, And I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He was giving Peter here great authority. And whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now that's a very poor translation. He was giving Peter great uh, responsibility as an overseer of the church, but he said, whatsoever you bind on earth better be what is bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on the earth had better be that which is loosed in heaven. Now, Catholics and others have tried to use verse 19 to say that the Pope or whoever had absolute, total power to change anything, and they could bind or loose anything they wanted to. Now, does that square with the God you read about in the rest of the Bible? I don't think so. The rest of the Bible says that God is the one who sets the rules, and we merely follow the rules. So what he was telling Peter is, I'm going to give you great power and authority within the church, but you had better go by what Scripture binds or loosens. You can't make these decisions on your own. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Emmanuel. And from that time forth began Christ to show to his disciples how that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and so on and be killed and raised up. Now, here's the man who was the top leader of the church. Christ had conferred that upon him. Now, look what happens to him. Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from you, Lord, this shall not be to you. Now, Christ had just said, this, this, and this are going to happen to me. And Peter said, it will not. That won't happen to you. That can't happen to you. Did Christ need that from Peter at that point? He was going to face a big enough trial without that. 
But it was coming, and Christ knew it, and he didn't need to have anybody tell him, oh, that won't happen, that won't happen. Why did he need any chance of his own faith being shaken, or his own conviction of what he had to go through? You know, you can, you can do things in a way that encourages somebody to finish the job they've been given, or you can discourage them from it. Now, Christ was frustrated enough, tempted enough, perhaps scared enough, and all the emotions that you and I would have gone through, because he was tempted in all points like as we are, he knew the time was near, and when it came right down to it, he said, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. He didn't want to have to go through it as a human being. He knew he had to, but even as he said that and expressed his emotions and his feelings and his inner need as a human, he says, but not my will, but yours be done. I defer to you, Father, even though this is hard for me. So this was not a helpful thing where Peter started arguing with it. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Now, those are pretty powerful words, aren't they? <laughs> what would your reaction be if you were headed a certain direction and you felt it was God's will for something to happen and somebody comes up and says, Oh, no, that's not going to happen. Don't worry about that. And we're telling you just the opposite of what you knew had to be. Now, what if somebody came and presented a negative attitude? Now, Peter didn't realize his, his attitude was negative. We, we have to grasp that. He thought his attitude was positive. He thought, I'm doing everything I can to save you from that, and I'll be there, and I won't let them do it. That was Peter's mentality. Now, that's admirable in a way. He was being loyal. He was being faithful. He was being as helpful as he, in his own mind and emotions, thought he could be. But what he did was negative, and it came from Satan. Now, that's a strange situation in a way, isn't it? Well, we can think we are doing God's will, and we might be doing just the opposite. That's why we need to pray diligently that God lead and guide our minds and our emotions so that what we do is truly helpful as opposed to being derogatory, negative, or unhelpful, even if we don't grasp it as such. Now, Peter, had he been truly spiritually aware would have realized Christ came to the earth for this purpose. This has to be, I love him, I will support him, I will help him, I'll be loyal and faithful, but it has to happen. So instead of saying, this isn't going to happen to you, had he been more spiritually aware, he would have said, I know you said that, so it must be that it has to happen. 
But I will be praying for you. I will be supporting you. I will be helping you get through it. That would have been a better approach. That would have been a godly approach. Understanding the will of God. Often we do not understand the will of God because we are not close enough to God through prayer and study of His Word so that His words and His purposes are forefront in our mind. If we are close enough to Him, our reactions will be different because we will understand His goals, His purposes, and what He is allowing or not allowing. And then we will have the spiritual perspicacity or understanding and ability to react the way we should. He meant well, but what he did was more of a discouragement than a help. So Christ turned and said, Get behind me, Satan. How would you react if someone, let's say, in this room decided that your motive was not right, that your attitude wasn't where it should be, for whatever reason, and turned to you and said, Get behind me, Satan. How would you react? <laughs> would you be offended? Oh, my, 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 my. Most of us couldn't take that. Well, you don't know what you're talking about. This was the guy that he had chosen to be the head of the church, the physical head. He was, of course, the spiritual head. Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. I know you think you love me. I know you think you're caring. I know you think blah, blah, blah. But this is offensive. For you savor not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. That shows it right there. He wasn't converted yet. He loved Christ as a human being. He wanted to help him, to serve him. He wanted to do what he could. And he had just been conferred a very high position and title within the church. And yet he was still thinking humanly and physically, not tuned into the plans and purposes of God sufficiently that he had a godly reaction. He had a normal human reaction to a friend. Okay? But sometimes our human reactions to our friends are not good either. Sometimes we condone and allow them or enable them to be in a wrong attitude. What is it the Proverbs say? The wounds of a friend are better than the blessings or the whatever it is of an enemy. Or that it is better to be... Uh, I'd have to look it up. Sometimes I can say it. Better to be rebuked than to be uh, complimented, let's say. Paraphrasing very loosely there. But we like sweet and nice things said. We don't like hard 
difficult things to be said. But sometimes it is needed. Something about the wounds of a friend are better than the compliments of an enemy. You're probably familiar with the one I'm trying to quote and can't. Then said Emmanuel to his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his stake, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. So he's giving a spiritual lesson here. Don't always look at things physically and what might seem to be the best, but get close enough to God that your perspective is truly spiritual and make sure your comments have to do with eternal life, eternal love, not just whose feelings might be hurt at the moment. It's an important spiritual lesson he gave them. He said, don't think about this physical life. That was Peter's immediate reaction, wasn't it? Your physical life is in danger. We won't let that happen. Now, Peter still did not truly have the Spirit of God when this story ended up, did he? Did he get this lesson? Not entirely, if at all. Because when Christ did go up to die, what did Peter try to do? Well, first, cut off the servant of the high priest's ear. I'm sure he took a great big wide swing at his neck and missed, is what I figure. And got his ear instead. That wasn't according to God's purposes. God had set Christ there to be taken that night and to be tortured because of your sins and mine and to die. Now, Peter says, I'm not going to let that happen. His attitude hadn't really changed. He must not have gotten it when Christ said this before. So, he was that way. And then, when they actually took Christ, as bold and brave and as vociferous as he was about, I will not let this happen, he denied him three times. I don't know the man. <laughs> Who are you talking about? I don't know him. See how human nature reacts? Sometimes we think that we are having a righteous reaction. Whereas, if we were closer to God and His Scriptures were more firmly implanted and more freshly implanted in our minds, we might be thinking in more spiritual terms and our reactions might be on a totally different level than they often are. And the only way you can know that or accomplish that is to be as close to God as you can possibly be, be as full of His Spirit as you can possibly be, and then you can trust that your reactions will be more spiritual than physical. But by nature, our reactions and actions are more physical. It is easy to walk in the flesh. Our human psyche, our human being, our human everything, 
is tuned by Satan from the Garden of Eden on to be contrary to God. Human nature is by nature antagonistic to God. You know you should pray and study. You know you need it. You know it should be a daily part of life. But it's hard to do. It is hard to make yourself do it, even though you desperately need it and know you do. Your mind, your reactions as a human, are absolutely contrary to doing what ought to be done first. You know how easy it is to entertain yourself, to turn on a TV or a, go to a movie or read something you might or might not need to read? You know how easy it is to find ways to avoid furthering your spiritual life and condition? We can get tired, we can get frustrated, we can get hungry, we can get a thousand different excuses we can find to put off spiritual development and growth. Because our nature is contrary. And Peter's was contrary to what Christ was trying to accomplish. Even though Peter meant to do well, he loved Christ, he loved the other disciples, he had enough potential and capacity and ability that Christ understood once he was actually converted and had God's Spirit, he could be a competent leader within the church. But there had to be some things that changed. And they did. But the bottom line here I'm trying to get across is look at how easily Peter could be influenced by his, A, human nature, and B, by Satan the devil. Because clearly, Satan was involved here in this situation. Get behind me, Peter? No. Get behind me, Satan. Notice Luke 22. Uh, here I want about uh, verse... Well, let's start with verse 1. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. So they knew that there was a certain amount of people around who cared for Christ and did respect him, and yet they wanted to kill him, and they were trying to figure out how to do it without starting a riot with the people. <laughs> then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve, and he went his way to betray Christ. Now, Judas, as a human being, would perhaps never have done what he did. But Satan actually entered into his mind, took control of his thoughts, and influenced him to sell Christ out for 30 pieces of silver. Just like that. He was sitting there, 
He was the treasurer. He had been entrusted with the bag, the money, for them to go about and to live and work. So there was a certain amount of trust that had been given to Judas that he apparently had handled without a problem. But when it came time to do the thing that God knew would occur when Christ even appointed him to be one of his disciples, happened in a flash when Satan took charge. He can do that so very, very easily. I want to get into, I probably will not today, but I want to get into some of the ways that he can take unfair advantage of us, under what conditions that it can happen. Now, this man was apparently sane. He was apparently relatively normal. And yet, somewhere within his mind was a way that Satan could take control and make him do what he wanted done. That's scary. There are ways to prevent it, and there are ways that it can happen very easily. Uh, let's see, I had verse 31 here too. Oh yeah, I want this one. Verse 31 of Luke 22. Uh, the Eternal said, Simon, Simon, or Peter, Behold, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. Did Satan sift Job as wheat? In many respects, yes. He didn't win in the long run, but boy, did he sift him hard. He sifted Judas and won. And he said, Do you remember Peter? Now, maybe he didn't have this in the conversation, I don't know. But it may have flashed very quickly through Peter's mind that he had said, he had been called Satan. Satan has influenced you so much, Peter, I'm just going to call you that. Now, here was a man of God who did not yet have God's Spirit, and yet Satan was able to manipulate him so easily. See how easy that was? To use, it's how deceptive and subtle Satan is. That Peter was thought he was acting on his very best attitude and approach. And Satan used that, turned it around, and made it a negative. So Satan is capable of taking people and make them think that what they're doing is good and right and the best thing that they could possibly be doing, and yet they are diametrically opposed to God and what God wants. That can happen so very, very easily. And did to Peter the Apostle. Wasn't an apostle yet, just a disciple. So let's go back down here. He said, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith fail not, and when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. He said, you've already screwed up royally. Now Satan wants to sift you, but I'm praying for you to the Father in heaven that Satan will not be allowed to take you down 
before the time you are converted and have the Spirit of God, where you will have the help you need to keep Satan from doing that. Again, what's the point? How powerful, how subtle, how easily Satan can affect human beings. We must have some kind of protection or we are in trouble. Now let's take this one more. Uh, let's go to Luke 4. This isn't the only account of this, but it gives some detail that's good. Luke 4, and let's begin in verse 2. Well, verse 1. And Emmanuel, being full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being forty days tempted of the devil. Now Christ, I mean the devil, had taken on Adam and Eve and won easily. He had taken on Cain and won easily. He had taken on almost human, many human beings, leaders, and won easily. David, uh, Peter, to name a few. Job. Now he didn't win to the point of destroying them and their relationship with God entirely. But he had a devastating effect on all those people and upon some of the people who were under their tutelage or their reign, where many of them died. Now here he takes on the Son of God directly. And he tried hard. Forty days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing... And when they were ended, he afterward hungered. After 40 days without eating, he was very, very hungry, to the point of starvation. Most people could not do this without dying. Moses did it twice. Christ did it once. And the devil said to him, If you be the Son of God, notice the subtlety here, Christ knew he was the Son of God. Here was somebody questioning that. Now, had he had, as weak as he was, had he had any ego, any pride, he would have snapped back at that like you and I would have. Of course I'm the Son of God. Why do you question that? How quick do we snap when somebody accuses us of anything? Or being too short or too tall or too fat or whatever. Too skinny. How quickly do we react? Too ugly. Whatever it is. We don't usually say those things quite that way to each other, but... You know, it doesn't take much to get us to get defensive, is all I'm saying. Whatever it might be. So, he was hoping for any pride or ego or selfishness in Christ is the reason he posed the question that way. If he didn't say, you're the Son of God, therefore, why don't you command this stone that it be made bread? He wasn't going to give him that. That would have been an acknowledgement that he was. So to work on his pride and ego that Satan hoped he had... He put the if in there. 
So that would have gotten most of us. The first word would have gotten most of us, most of the time, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer. If you be the Son of God, command the stone that it be made bread. That's a fairly logical request. Christ certainly had the power. Did he increase the loaves and fishes? Yeah. Did he make water into wine? Yeah. He could have made food real easily. So Satan presented him with something that Christ could easily do and later did do for others. So it was no big deal. But, who was putting him up to it, and why? Christ had to think beyond his immediate hunger. He had to think of why he was on the earth. He had to think of his Father in heaven. He had to think of what was eventually coming in his life, torture and death. He had to think what was coming in your life and mine later on when we had sinned against our Father in heaven, broken his rules, and would need forgiveness, otherwise we would have to die. All that had to go like lightning through his mind, not to react to a very simple thing that he could easily do. Now, why would it have been wrong for him to do that? Had Satan not been there, and he had desired some bread it would not have been a problem for him to make some. But, he understood that this was about rulership of the earth forevermore. Those were the stakes. Satan was putting a simple thing before him that he could easily have done without sin. The sin that was involved here would have been obeying Satan. Doing something that was not at that point the will of God, but the will of Satan. Because Satan had been the ruler of the earth up until that point, appointed by God to do so. And he has not yet been reserved to this, removed to this day from that position. He still rules this earth with an iron hand for evil. He will not be deposed until Christ takes him by the nap of the neck and binds him for a thousand years at his return. But had Christ made bread right there, Satan would have defeated him and he would rule the earth forevermore. None of us wanted that, and Christ didn't either. So here's the answer he gave him. It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Now we have to live by bread, we're physical. But he makes the point, it isn't just bread we're talking about here, You've got to live by every word of God. Now, them's fighting words to Satan. He doesn't want to live by any word of God. 
perfect answer. Perfect answer. You have to live by every word of God. Rule. Don't like that. Let's go to another question. Next question. The devil take him up to a high mountain, and there are none around Jerusalem in the Middle East. There are where the true Jerusalem is. Showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Now, from a high mountain on the earth, you're not going to see all the way around the earth. But he probably took him up there and he could see a certain amount. But Satan was able to fill in and say, you know, here, 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 and there. Uh, all around the earth, this can be yours. Now, do you think Satan was about to turn loose of his control of the earth without a fight? No, so he's lying to him right off the bat. I'll let you rule the whole earth. Well, under me. <laughs> That's what Christ was scheduled to do, is rule the earth. But not under Satan. He had to defeat Satan and then qualify, or thereby qualify to rule the earth, and when the time was right, take charge and put Satan into solitary confinement. But Satan twisted it. I'm, I, I'm the ruler, I'm the present ruler of this world, so I can confer it on you. And the devil said to him, All this power will I give you, and this glory of them, for that, I is, for that is delivered to me, and to whomsoever I will give it. I have this power, and I can give it to you. Now, Christ didn't have it. Do we understand that? He was a human being. He breathed. He walked. He ate. He drank. And he didn't rule the world. He was a candidate to, and he came here to fulfill that candidacy, to qualify, and ultimately to do so. But in the meantime, Satan had that power and claimed he would give it to him. I'm sure he had, would have been an Indian giver, because if Christ had said, okay, I'll go for that, then he said, gotcha. There's a lot of people out there that think God's trying to say gotcha. No, they got the wrong individual involved. Satan's the one that's trying to get you, not God. God's trying to save you. God's trying to pull you out of this mess down here intact and let you live forever. That's his goal and purpose. That's why he's so merciful, so forgiving, so loving, and so kind, even though he beats our behind sometimes. But Satan's there with a gotcha, just waiting. And he would have been an Indian giver immediately. Oh, I'm just joking. Sorry, I'm going to stay in control. You've had it. Bye. <coughs> if you therefore will worship me, all shall be yours. All you have to do is obey me. Bow down. You're hungry. <coughs> I didn't get you on physical food. How about power? <coughs> what are the pressure points of most human beings? What do politicians want? money and power to do what they want to do. 
what it's all about in this human world. So that's what he offered him. He knew it was a high pressure point. And Emmanuel answered and said to him, Get ye behind me, Satan. <laughs> Same thing he said to Peter. But he's talking to the literal Satan here. For it is written, You shall worship the eternal your God, and him only shall you serve. And Satan had done that at one time. <clears throat> now he was not. Now he was against God. He was his enemy. So Christ said, you know, you're the one wrong here, fella. You're supposed to obey God with all your heart. Those are fighting words of Satan, too. And he's going to rise again and fight God and try to take over the universe. Here he was taking an incremental step toward that. If I can defeat Christ, and he won't be there with the Father... The Father will be weakened, and I might have a better chance of taking over the universe. Now, why do I say that? Because we know that he tried to take over the universe. That is his goal, that, it is, mo that is his motive, that is his goal in life, is to take over the universe. So it had to be in his thinking here. And he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you be the Son of God, jump, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest at any time you dash your foot against a stone. That's scripture. That's true. Everything that Satan said essentially was true, except the twist and the lie that he put to it. But he's quoting Scripture here. Doesn't it say that? Doesn't it say if a snake bites you, it won't hurt you? Happened to Paul, didn't hurt him. There was a holy roller type in Kentucky recently that handled rattlesnakes a lot. He got bit and died. Does God want... We, there's some rattlers up here in the rocks. We could go get a crate full. Would you, uh, would you like to follow through on this scripture? If you do this, they won't hurt you. You won't have any problem. Christ had an answer for that. It is said, you shall not tempt the eternal your God. Now, if inadvertently, by accident, some of these things happen, you fell off a building, a snake bit you, whatever... And you were close enough to God, and it wasn't His will at that point for you to croak, you would be saved. There are some individuals that God has said at the end of this age are going to die. He will protect them, speaking of the two witnesses for one, He will protect them up until the day He has decreed that they'll die. Then, that day, they will die. It will be God's will. It will have been His will up until then to protect them from all the firepower of the whole world. And then one day He'll say, it's time, die. Yes, Lord. Your will be done. Has to be the right response. So we know that's going to happen to at least two people. 
It could happen to any of us in some form or fashion. Many of you could sit here and tell me stories about how you have nearly died. I have many times. Usually at my own hand. Not on purpose, but stupidity. Adventuresome, too brash, too bold, whatever. I've almost killed myself many times. Sometimes not injured at all. Sometimes injured enough to maybe penetrate a little bit. But I can recount quite a few different stories where I really, truly should have died. And some of you can as well. Maybe all of you, for all I know. But God had a purpose in your life, and here you are. Here you are. Be sure you follow up and fulfill His hope and purpose in you. He's seen you through this far. Don't let it slip away now. Out of abuse or misuse or lackadaisical approach or whatever. He has a great purpose being worked out in you, for you, forevermore. Now, Satan is after us just like he was after Peter and just after he was after, like he was after Christ here. There was more at stake with Christ because it involved all of humanity. There is less at stake when Satan comes after you or me because it is only one individual, perhaps a little larger that than that, in that if Satan gets to you, he could use you to get to a few others. So it might not be just you, but it could be you and friends, relatives, other members that could be affected by it. But it's more personal, let's say. But think about it that way. Christ had to think of all mankind. But God loves you. He loves me, even. Sometimes I wonder why, but he does. And he wants me, and he wants you, every one of you, in his kingdom someday. Man, woman, and child. And Satan is diametrically opposed to that happening. And he will do everything he can to stop it. He did all he could with Christ. And he would have gotten all of mankind had he accomplished that. Because we would have had to have died eternally for our sins, not have them put in his blood. Well, there was a lot at stake here. But the devil did his best. <laughs> he did his best. And when the devil had ended all the temptations, he departed from him for a season. I think that is quite interesting. He had given the ultimate challenge and lost. He tucked his tail and went away. Embarrassed, perhaps, ashamed, frustrated, angry, but defeated. But he only stayed gone for a season. He would be back. You and I might have an encounter with Satan. We might win. 
And he might leave us, him or his demons. But they will be back. They do not give up. If there's anything else, there's, they are, it is stubborn. Their hate is so deep that they are miserable with their hate. And they will not give it up. They want us dead, brethren. They want us dead. And that hate is so deep, they will never give it up. In fact, they will have to be put in confinement throughout eternity because they won't give it up. If they can't rule the universe, they don't want you and me to either. And as long as they are loose on this earth and in the universe, they will be trying to kill every one of us. And their target, their biggest target now, they failed with Christ. Their biggest target is those who know and serve the eternal true God and have his spirit. Those are his biggest targets at the moment. Those are the ones that he goes back and forth to the throne of God to day by day accusing of everything he can think of that we might do wrong or that he can lie about or whatever else. He has not even given up at taking over the throne of God. God will allow him to attack again. And then he will be put down forevermore. So, in frustration... While he cannot attack the throne of God right now, he is attacking those who might someday go to the throne of God. And I hope we're not missing the lesson here on the kind of power he has. That's the reason I'm giving this series, is to better acquaint us with our enemies. To better understand how he operates so that we might not be taken and snared and deceived and destroyed. He works through lies. He works through subtlety. He works through deception. He works through false accusation. He works through true accusation. He works any way he can find to pull us away from God and each other. Now, how do men know we're the disciples of Christ? If we love one another. If he can cause us not, by hook or by crook, to love one another, he will have us where he wants us. And that is one of the main ways he works. Divide and conquer. It's known in military circles. It's known in business. It's known by human experience. If you're fighting a unified group, you will have trouble. If you fight and divide that, you can pick them off one by one or two by two. It's a well-known ploy. 
used throughout history by Satan and men. Therefore, we must have the love of God above everything else. As Paul put it, love the brethren with a fervent love. Not sort of, not like them, a fervent love. We must be unified so he cannot divide us further. He's divided the church horribly, and he's still working at it. So he can pick us off one by one, two by two, three by three, and frustrate God's purpose to have us in his kingdom. We're not like the rest of the world. He has them in the palm of his hand. We are struggling to escape his clutches. And we must succeed, because our chance at salvation is now. Everybody gets one solid good chance. He's called you and me now. This is our one and only chance. We must succeed. This is life and death, eternally. And we have a great and formidable foe to fight. I'm not done with this, but I'm out of time for today. But I hope we're beginning to realize the spiritual battle, or at least have it renewed in our minds, that we are fighting.